We live today, 2017, uh, in, in a time and age where we are surrounded, bombarded, immersed in options, choices, different claims everywhere we turn. And all you have to do is be standing at the checkout uh, counter there, the line at the grocery store by the magazine rack, and you see all those magazines with all sorts of different claims. This is, this is the diet that's going to make the difference. This is the best. This is the way to be healthy. It's the South Beach diet. No, 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 it's the Atkins diet. It's the paleo diet. It's the vegan diet. We're bombarded with all sorts of different options and claims to what is better, what is best. Uh, I went to TELUS here in uh, Stonewall two weeks ago, finally broke down, got a cell phone, and um, I thought it was a passing fad, to be honest, and I was just kind of holding out. (laughs) But apparently not. So I finally broke down and got a cell phone for the very first time and I was there and and uh, the lady was telling me all these different phones all the different options that were available to me this sort of memory and gigs and this phone does that and this phone does this but not that and, and she goes through all these different options and she says what do you want yeah <laughs> I want one that makes phone calls and <laughs> Quentin Weeb. Quentin, get. <laughs> get out of here. This is why I was hesitant to, to, to get a. I swear. Now, I'm not going to lie. I got it two weeks ago. Within an hour, I don't know how Quentin got my phone number, but within the hour, text after text after text. And uh, I, I didn't know they made crude emojis like that, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, so if any of you know how to block someone on a cell phone, please <laughs> come and find me afterwards. Please don't do that again, okay? <laughs> uh, anyway, it, it was only like a generation or two ago that you, you probably were going to grow up to be like your parents, right? You were going to dress like your parents dress. You were going to maybe use the words your parents used. You were going to eat the food your parents ate. You're probably going to have a job, the same job your parents had, right? If your dad was a blacksmith, you're probably going to be a blacksmith. It wasn't that long ago. That's just kind of the way it went. What your parents believed, that's probably just what you were going to believe, right? We don't live in that time anymore. Now we're bombarded with all sorts of options and different claims as to what is, is best, what is true, what is good and valuable, and, and so we have to navigate these waters, just like the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written, a group of Christians, struggling Christians in the city of Rome almost 2,000 years ago, at the cultural center of the universe at that time, different religions, different claims on every corner of the city, and this is the, the place in which they lived. Uh, and, and the purpose of the book of Hebrews, as we've been going through it, is, is to show those people and to show us today that We've got all these options available to us, all these claims, but Jesus is better. Jesus is a superior value and worth to us than any other thing, any other one that vies for our heart or our allegiance or our life. 
Jesus is better on every count. And so as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've been, we've, we've been exploring all the ways he shares in which Jesus is better for us in our life. And like I said, the people to whom it was written, they were a struggling group. They were facing all sorts of hardships and uncertainties. And it, I think it's kind of true that, that when you're going through tough times, you tend to revert back to past practices, past attitudes, past patterns. And, and so this group of Christians, they were tempted to go backwards to what they had come out of which was for them, being that they were Jewish believers, they had come out of the Jewish religious system and they were being tempted to turn back to that system, that way of relating to God that had been so familiar to them. I mean, it was a system that God had established many years before with his people Israel and and a part of that system is he, God established, he designated the tribe of Levi to be priests for his people who would represent his people to God who would mediate for them on behalf of them to secure for the people the blessing and the favor and the acceptance of God and so they would come to the temple and they would offer their sacrifices to gain God's favor, his blessing, and and they would go and the priests would mediate between them and God. And and for whatever reason, this group of Christians are kind of tempted to go back to what was familiar because familiar is safe, especially when times are tough. But he reminds them that, that, that God never saw that system as as the best, as the final solution for his people. Three times the author of Hebrews, we're not exactly sure who wrote the book, whoever it was, three times he quotes a particular verse from Psalm 110. Now don't go to Psalm 110. But Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It's very clear that it was written foretelling about the the one that God had promised to send to be a deliverer for the people to lead people into and establish God's kingdom forever, right? And so Psalm 110 talks about this coming one and what he will do and what he will be like and three times the author of Hebrews quotes this particular verse which we know is about Jesus and he knew was about Jesus and the people to whom he wrote knew was about Jesus. And the verse is this from Psalm 110. Uh, and 10 verse 4. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now he's talking about the Messiah, the deliverer. He's talking about Jesus. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus is saying, the one I'm gonna send, he will be a priest forever and he will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Does that make perfect sense? Now I know that, this is what we're gonna talk about. What does it mean? Because this is what the author of Hebrews does. He's gonna show them that Jesus is this priest and what does it mean for Jesus to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? That's the purpose of my message. What does that mean? Now I know there's two groups here right now. One group is gonna hear that and go, that sounded like gibberish to me. 
This is why I didn't want to come this morning. I wanted to go golfing. I wanted to stay home. I'm going through stuff at work. I'm going through stuff at home. And you're talking about a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What? And, and, and you're going to be tempted to just close your ears and say, this is irrelevant. But what I'm going to tell you and what I hope we'll see is that, that what, he, what this means is absolutely irrelevant and ultimately important to your life tomorrow morning when you wake up. There's another group here, and, 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 and you've gotten giddy. You want to wring your hands. Ooh, a puzzle, a mystery. I love solving riddles. Ooh, the riddle, the mystery of Melchizedek. This should be fun. And, and, and you're just a weird sort of person that, that <laughs> you like to figure stuff out just for the fact that you conquered it. You figured it out. You solved the riddle. Not because it's information that you can bring within you that's gonna change and shape how you live. And I want you to open your ears because as we look at this mystery and as we solve it, it's absolutely relevant and ultimately important for you when you wake up tomorrow morning. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I just wanna break down those words in our few minutes together. Jesus is a priest. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter seven. The whole chapter of, of chapter seven in Hebrews is dedicated to expound on this. We're gonna jump around a little bit in chapter seven. He begins the very last verse by saying, Jesus has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's look at the word priest. Verse 11 of chapter seven says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, that's all a part of the law, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. Now, there's some words there that maybe you don't understand. Levitical, right? But just, just refers to the fact that God ordained, he, he, he chose the, 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 the tribe, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Levi, they were the ones that were to be the priests that served in the temple, okay? That's the Levitical priesthood. And Aaron was Moses' brother, he was a Levite, and it's his descendants that became priests. Not all Levites were priests, those that descended from Aaron, that strain within the tribe, they were the priests. They were the high priests, okay? So that represents this system. And, and he says, if perfection could have been attained through this system, why was there still need for another priest to come? Now, I, I, I'm a good Baptist boy, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor's kid, and I, I grew up in, in a church where we didn't have priests. I had no frame of reference for priests like maybe some of you did growing up in another tradition, Anglican or Catholic. I thought my Catholic friends were just a little weird. Priests, that's antiquated. God has done away with that. Why do you go to someone in your church, a man that you call a priest who mediates between you and God through whom you have to confess to receive God's forgiveness and through whom God imparts his grace to you through this priest because a priest is a mediator? Right? And I thought that was kind of bizarre. Everybody knows, the Bible's clear that, that God has done away with the priests. We have no need of priests anymore. But that's not what he says. 
He says, it's not that you don't need priests. He says, what you and I need is we need a better priest. A better priest. Not no priest. A better one. Why do we need a priest? Because a priest is a mediator between God and man. He is the go-between, the one who bridges the gap because we cannot become near to God on our own in ourself, on our own merit. Now, this is, this is kind of a foreign concept in our society today because we, we have too high a view of ourselves and we have too low a view of God, and so we can become very cavalier with God, but the scriptures make clear that we cannot approach God, be acceptable to God based on ourselves, our righteousness, our merit, because God is unfathomably holy. We cannot comprehend the holiness, the purity, the righteousness of God. We cannot comprehend that. When we realize how holy and unapproachable, how good and perfect God is, and how sinful and corrupted and, uh, and, and defiled that we are, um, then we understand our need for a mediator someone who can go between on our behalf, go before us. You see in Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah was a good man. He was a godly young man. And yet in Isaiah six, we find that he gets a vision of God. And in this vision, he gets a sense of, 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 of the person and the presence of God And he gets a glimpse of his glory and he is undone. He says, this man, he says, woe is me, I am ruined. I am ruined, I am a man of unclean living. Now that I've seen this, the unapproachable holiness, purity of God, I realize that I am so unclean in comparison. I'm so corrupted, I'm so unholy. And he says, I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so there's this gap between us in our corruption and God in his perfect holiness. And so God in his mercy established a go-between, okay? A priest who would mediate that gap, that one that could represent us and, 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 and gain from God his favor and his blessing for us. And the author of Hebrews says, and God foretold in Psalm 110, that Jesus is a priest. He is a better priest. He is the only priest, which Paul says in Timothy, there is now but one mediator between God and man. We haven't gone from priests to no priests. We've gone from priests to priests. There's now one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. We need a priest to mediate to God on our behalf. This is who Jesus is, the author of Hebrews says. He says, it, Jesus is a priest of a different order. Order, I mean, you kind of understand what that word means, right? 
Order means the arrangement of, of things in relation to one another, how you arrange, arrange things in, a, in some sort of pattern or relationship that shows how they relate to one another, right? So, so Jesus is a priest, but he is a priest of a different order. It involves a different sort of relationship between God and man than the Levitical priesthood that God had established earlier. It's a different order by which God and man relate to one another in different ways. And that, um, and that order is what he calls the order of Melchizedek. Something about how through Jesus there is this new relation between God and us has something to do with Melchizedek and what it, what it was like for him to be a priest. Now, if you... If you've never heard of Melchizedek, it's okay. Okay? Uh, Because, you know what? He shows up once in the Old Testament and his whole story is three verses. And his name shows up once in Genesis 14, shows up once in the quoted passage in Psalm 110, and that's it. And he's always been a bit of a mysterious figure. He just shows up and then he's gone. Three verses. Who is this Melchizedek? And then Hebrew, the author of Hebrews makes this big deal about Melchizedek. In what way is Melchizedek like Jesus or Jesus like him? So let me give you the, the, the back story here. This, this short account of Melchizedek is found in Genesis chapter 14. So let me give you the back story. Abraham has come into the land that the Lord has promised to give him. And he came with his nephew Lot and his family and they've settled in this land. And in this land there are cities and each city has its own king and its own army. But there's rivalries and there's alliances. And so we find in Genesis 14 that a group of kings rose up and they fought another group of of kings and and, and they conquered them and, and, and they conquered their cities and they took as their own, they took captive all the people of those cities and all their possessions. They took his plunder. And one of the cities they captured was the city of Sodom. Now Lot, Abraham's nephew, lived in the city of Sodom. So Lot and his family were all captured. Word comes to Abram that this has happened. And that troubles him. And so we find in Genesis 14, in the middle of the night, he takes his men and he goes on this daring midnight raid. And he goes to where these captives are being held and rescues them and defeats the enemy and, and, uh, and, and, and retakes all of those uh, captives, all those people, including Lot in those possessions. Anyway, so he wins the day. And this is the backstory. Genesis 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high, you delivered your enemies, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth, gave him a tithe of everything. That's it, the story ends. I'm strange. How is Jesus like Melchizedek? How does that shed any light on Jesus. I, I just want to, I, I, I came this morning prepared to share two, 
Two different ways that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek and what that means for us. And because time is a bit fleeting, I, I'm, I'm just gonna really wanna touch on the second one. But if you go back to Genesis chapter, or sorry, Hebrews chapter seven, which elaborates on this, you find in Hebrews seven verse one, The writer says, now this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness because Melech and Zedek, king righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. And then also the king of, he was the king of Salem. Salem means peace, shalom. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he, that is, Melchizedek, remains a priest forever. Now, now some people have read those, those, those kind of strange words and, and thought, well, maybe, maybe Melchizedek is some sort of like supernatural, angelic, Christ-like figure back then. And that's not what he's trying to say. He's not saying that he didn't have a beginning. It's not, he's not saying he didn't die or he didn't have a mom and dad. All he's noting is that if you go back into the story of Melchizedek, it doesn't say anything about his ancestry. It doesn't say anything about his birth. It doesn't say anything about whose daddy he belongs to right? or, or whether he died. Right? You see, the Levitical priesthood, um, they were priests not because of their own righteousness, not because of their own goodness, but because of their genealogy. Right? They were priests because they were Uh, from the tribe of Levi. They weren't necessarily any better. And so we find in Hebrews chapter seven, verse 16, that um, it says this, what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is not a priest. He doesn't mediate based on the fact that he has certain DNA like they did, but they were still sinners and we're told that they were weak and they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could offer sacrifices for the people and because they were sinners, they died too like every other sinner. Their priesthood wasn't permanent and he says Jesus' priesthood is a different order. It's not based on his genealogy. It's based on the fact that he is the king of righteousness. In his very being, Jesus is righteous. He is set apart from sinners and because of who he is in himself, he is perfectly qualified. When he laid down his life, made one sacrifice once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, he is perfectly qualified to mediate for you and I forever and make us perfectly acceptable to God based on his own righteousness. And so his priesthood is perfect and it's permanent and I don't really wanna say anything more about that but, but Jesus is, uh, has a better character, right? But I wanna focus on the second point that Jesus brings a better covenant. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because Jesus brings a better covenant. There's a little detail that's easy to miss, but it's kind of profound. If you go back to the story, it says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, then Abraham 
gave an offering. Now it's easy to, to, to read over that and go, so what? But the order here is important, okay? This is what's totally different. Melchizedek blesses, then Abraham responds with an offering, okay? There was no law, there was no command that compelled Abraham to give a blessing. The blessing he received wasn't contingent upon the obedience of offering a gift or a tithe as it was for um, the order of, of Levitical priests. And this is what the author of Hebrews says when he goes on in chapter seven, verses um, five, he says, now the law, the law that God gave to his people through Moses, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites. He's saying in, 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 in the old order, it was a law, it was a command that they had to give, they had to offer a tenth of everything to the temple, to God, to the priesthood, okay? That was, um, amongst many other laws, that was one of the laws which governed the relationship of God between his people. That covenant, that agreement God had between himself and his people was based on these laws, and there were many laws. And essentially, you can, sum, you, you can summarize that covenant it, 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 with this one sentence. God says, your obedience will result in my blessing. Okay? That's the order of Levi. That's the order of the law. Your obedience, God says, will result in my blessing. And so you see in Deuteronomy chapter seven, don't turn there, I just wanna read this quick. After the law is given, Deuteronomy uh, chapter seven, verses 12 and 13. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. Do you, do you see the order? If you keep this command, all of these commands, I will love you and I will bless you. You see in Exodus chapter 24 verse seven, something similar. Then Moses took the book of the covenant, which is the law, and he read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And later on, the, 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 peop it, um, the people affirmed that cursed is anyone who does not obey every single one of these commands. Okay. This is how God relates to his people in this order. You obey, I will bless what was the problem with that? And they agreed to that. Okay, they said, okay, we'll obey. But what happened? Anybody know how that went? Did they obey? Uh, no, I mean, they tried. Some of them tried. Some of them tried really hard. Some didn't try at all. But you can summarize the Old Testament by saying it didn't work. Okay? They didn't obey. In fact, this is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter seven, verse 18. He says, the former regulation, that system, that order is set aside, it's annulled because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. 
And a few verses later, chapter eight, verse seven, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant based on the law, no place would have been sought for another. He says it was weak and useless. In other words, it wasn't effective. There was nothing wrong with the law itself. The law was perfect. It was good. But it was ineffective. Because it didn't result in obedience from the people. The fault wasn't with the law. We're told that the fault, God found fault with the people. Chapter eight, verse eight. God found fault with the people. They didn't obey. It didn't make them perfect. So this is what you see, that the law, the law, God's perfect law that he gave, the law declared God's holy standard, it was a perfect standard, but it didn't provide the power that led us to obey it. It couldn't empower obedience. It didn't, in other words, it didn't change people. They were, they were the same old rusty. They were just now rusty with a bunch of laws to follow. The heart was unchanged. It was the same. The desires didn't change, the heart didn't change, the law was good, but the heart wasn't. And no amount of rules, as good as those rules might be, is gonna change a person. You realize this as a parent. I mean, if, you, if, you've, got, if you've got a bad kid, and I've got three, no, I'm kidding, they're, they're very good, they're very good girls. Um, sometimes, right? They be disobedient too. You know, but if, if, if you have a disobedient child or a problem child, you realize quick that making more rules isn't gonna help them get any better. Oh, you have a problem. Okay, what you need are more rules to obey. It doesn't work. It doesn't make them any kinder. It doesn't make them any more loving. It doesn't make them any more forgiving. It doesn't make them any less angry. It doesn't make them any more generous. It doesn't work. And it didn't work. But God knew it wouldn't work. In fact, God was wanting to show them that they couldn't do it on their own. He wasn't surprised by this. And he had a plan, which the author of Hebrews quotes here in chapter eight. He quotes uh, from Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, it said, uh, but God found fault with the people and he said, the days are coming. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will be like, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. They didn't obey, so I didn't bless. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them in their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And so he says, there's gonna be a new covenant, a new agreement, a new order that is coming and when that comes, there's gonna be a change within, within the people. Their, the law will now be on there. It won't be something that's put on them from the outside. It will be something that springs from within them. 
and they won't have to be told. This new covenant is coming. Now, it was written about 550 years before Christ. The next time we find those two words together, new covenant, are on the lips of Jesus when he's around the table with his disciples at that last supper, you know the scene. And he takes the cup and he holds up the cup before them and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. The day has come. The new covenant is here and it is based not on the laws, it is now based on my blood, my life which is being poured out for you on the cross. So this new covenant was established by Jesus on the cross when we took, he took our sin on himself and he paid for it all in his sacrifice of himself. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were disobedient, Christ died and he poured out, of his, poured out his life and he did it all for you and for me. That's the new covenant. So what's the connection with Melchizedek? What does Melchizedek have to do with this? Well, it's the order. You see, in, in, in the order of the Levitical priesthood, in the order of the old covenant, it was your obedience will bring my blessing, but now this is different. The order has been reversed. You see, Melchizedek gave a blessing and the response of Abraham was to give an offering. It wasn't commanded, it wasn't compelled. It came from within him, an offering of praise and thanksgiving. And so it is with Jesus as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Just as that blessing preceded the offering, so God's blessing for us in this new covenant through Jesus comes apart from the keeping of the law, apart from our works of obedience. It's given before anything ever happens. It comes to us through the work of Jesus. And so the blessing of God, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of his acceptance, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of eternal life, it's, it's, it's a gift wholly of God's grace. It's just given. Apart from any obedience, apart from any works on our own behalf, on, apart from any merit, it's just given, undeserved, un unmerited, but given by God anyway. He gives us blessing through Jesus to re be received by faith. Through re to be received by faith, which essentially means you need to stop working for it and thinking you can earn it and deserve it. You need to stop and you need to repent of that and you need to just trust that Jesus by his perfect work has secured God's blessing for you. You just have to receive it. You receive God's grace. You receive this blessing by faith. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You just receive it. It's passive. God is active and in a sense we are passive in that way but we have to receive it. It's God gives his grace through Jesus to all the world and we have to choose to receive it or not. It's kind of like the sun. You know, the sun shines on the whole world. But you've got to get out of your house and stand in the sun if you want to receive the benefits of the sun. If you want to tan, you've got to go stand in the sun. Now, did you earn the tan? 
You didn't earn the tan. Did you do anything to get that tan? Did you deserve the tan? No, no, what did you do? You went and you stood in the sun and you received the tan. You received the benefits of the sun. He says it's the same with God's grace. It shines on all the world, but you have to get out and stand in it. You have to receive it by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. That blessing comes before any of our work or in spite of any of our work. And Abraham's blessing or Abraham's response to receiving that blessing was to make an offering. Not because he was compelled or commanded. His response to the blessing he received was to make an offering. Whereas in the old covenant, it was the opposite, right? Your obedience will result in my blessing. But now through Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest that has brought a new covenant, it's different. He says, my blessing will result in your obedience, My blessing will result in your obedience. You see, it's grace. Isn't it funny? What the people couldn't and wouldn't do when it was commanded of them, when God's blessing was conditional on it, it happens when when, when God's blessing is freely given apart from it. Grace transforms a person's heart. This is, what, this is what God meant when he says the new covenant's coming and I'm gonna write their, I'm gonna write my laws on their hearts. It's gonna come within them because when they realize that, that it has all been won for them, that when Jesus has poured out his life for them, when we have received the blessing of God through Jesus, right? When we, when we, when we receive that grace, what does it do? It transforms our heart. It actually comes in and that grace changes us. It gives us new desires. It reshapes our heart. It makes us different. So it's not be- so so I don't respond to commands. It's I now do this out of love for God. This is why Paul said in, in, in Romans chapter 13, you know, where there is love, there is no need for the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If someone loves his neighbor, he doesn't need laws. If someone loves God, he doesn't, need, he doesn't need laws, right? When we know the love of God for us in Jesus, when we receive his grace, it transforms and fills our heart and makes us new. And Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. And that makes all the difference. My, my response now is not, an act on my own behalf to try to win God's blessing. My, my response now is just, it's just an overflow of love to a God that has already blessed me. Even though I didn't deserve it and couldn't earn it. Because I love him. Because I find joy in loving him and blessing him. To, to use a little example in marriage here, um, Maybe some of you guys can relate to this. Your, your wife leaves and then she gives you some things to do. Has this happened to anybody else? Am I the only one? See that, hon? I'm the only one. Stop it. <laughs> anyway, my wife just came home this morning. We talked on the phone last night and, and she said, um, uh, the dishes will be clean, right? I said, oh. I hate washing dishes. I hate cleaning. There's nothing I hate more than cleaning the kitchen. 
And, and I know my wife doesn't like it either, but she's better at it, so I just try to let her do it. <laughs> you know, but, but, let's say when your wife gives you instructions, I, I, I want you to do this. I want this to be done when I get home. Otherwise, I'm, you, I'm not going to be happy. Not going to go well for you. Maybe you'll do it, maybe you won't, but you won't want to do it, and if you do it, you're going to do it grumblingly. It's going to be agony. Maybe you've been there, but, but, but you know what I've found from time to time? Now, my, my wife will tell you this doesn't happen all that often, but she lies. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see how hard my wife works. Now, she just did a wedding. She drove down to Minnesota. She just, with the kids, she photographed a wedding, put the kids to bed. I'm sitting up here watching Netflix. I mean, it's a good life, you know? But I, 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 I see all that she does for me, right? And, <clears throat> wow, she... She loves me. She's faithful. I love that. Hmm. I know that she loves when that kitchen is clean. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this to bless her. And, and so from time to time, I'll go in there. <laughs> I'm going to hear about this, I know. And I'll clean the kitchen. Now what would have been done before as, as an act of compulsion, as an act of agony, grumblingly, now it's a totally different experience because it is an act of love to someone from whom I have received nothing but love and faithfulness. It totally transforms the act. It totally transforms my heart. It actually becomes, oddly enough, a bit of a joy. and it ceases to become a chore. And, and I think this is what Jesus, what makes Jesus different, makes Jesus better, which makes this covenant he brings better because Jesus, Jesus has lavished this blessing on us, unearned, undeserved. He's been so good, so faithful, all that he has given you that you've just received apart from anything you've done, all the promises. And if you could just think on that, and if your heart and your mind could be filled with that, you'd be changed. You would obey, not because you would serve, you would submit, not because you have to, not because his blessing is conditional in it, but because he has already blessed you in spite of it and you love him so much and it is a joy for you to please him. His blessing, when it's received by us, produces in us goodness, obedience that the law could never produce where the old covenant failed, the new covenant succeeds. Our, our obedience springs not from what God asks us to do. It springs from what he has already done for us. 
Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. So my question for you, I told you, I, I kind of promised that this was gonna be relevant and important. And I, I think it is here, but so the, the question I, wa- I wanna leave you is, are you living in the old covenant or are you living in the new covenant? Are you living in the old order of relating to God or are you living in the new eternal order of relating to God? It makes all the difference in the world. I'm not asking if you're a Christian or not. I mean, that's, a good, that's an important question. Have you trusted in Jesus? And it's the most important question. What I'm asking you is, is, as those who have trusted in Jesus, are you living in your attitude, in your heart, in your actions, are you living in the new covenant or are you living or in the old covenant or are you living in the new covenant? Because, because the audience to whom Hebrews was written, they were reverting back to a different way of operating, a different way of thinking. And I think it is so easy for us to revert back to the old order, the old way of relating to God as well. I mean, we can wake up on Monday morning and we can say, what do I need to do to make God happy? What do I need to do so that he's gonna give me his blessing so that it may go well with me? What do I need to do? Or I can live with the fear of not doing what I ought to have done and not experiencing that blessing. And that leads to fear and that leads to frustration. The author of Hebrews says, he says there's better. He says, or you can wake up Monday morning and you can be struck again by all the blessing that is yours in Jesus. All that you have received and receive every day. And you can be pleased in God by remembering all of that unmerited blessing that is yours through Jesus. And you can say, that's amazing. God is good. How can I bless God? How can I express my joy in God today? How can I bless that love? How can I bless that faithfulness? That brings freedom. That brings goodness. Maybe this is what the writer meant when he said at the end of the book of Hebrews there in his final comments. He said this, chapter 13, verse nine. He says, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. I wonder if that's what he meant. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. In fact, it is the only way for a heart to be strengthened is by grace. For if grace, God's grace, be your food, you will not grow weak. Let's pray. Father, we, we can only thank you that While we were sinners, while we deserve nothing from you, while you were so incredibly holy and you could have just flicked us into hell with one little flick of your toe and it would totally have been deserved. And yet, you loved us and you sent your son into the world to do what we couldn't and to lay down his life in place of ours, to shed his blood and instead of demanding ours to fulfill all righteousness for us so that we might receive your blessing, we might receive yourself, we might receive forgiveness, we might receive eternal life simply by receiving it. 
We thank you, Father, that you have done so much for us and you do so much for us every day, Lord. And I just pray that as we think on that, as our hearts and our minds dwell on that, on your grace, Father, that that you might strengthen us and that out of that, out of all you have done for us, there might well up in us a love and a desire and a joy in blessing you and obeying you and being good. So Father, this week, as we go into this new week, whatever it holds, we just pray that you would strengthen our hearts by your grace, that we might know the joy of serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.